Hello, everybody, and welcome to One Flew Over the Shorebirds Nest, the Delmarva Shorebirds podcast. My name is Will DeBoer, Director of Broadcasting and Communications for your Shorebirds. Coming up later on, we'll have one of my favorite interviews that we've done on the podcast this season. It's Shorebirds Silver Anniversary Team left-handed relief pitcher Scott Rice, who pitched for Delmarva from 2002 to 2003. We'll have the interview with Scott Rice, followed by fan shots. Before that, the call of the week. And right now, new business. Shorebirds masks are now on sale. Remember, COVID-19 is still out there, and it's still our duty to each other to help keep it from spiking again. Right now, you can get a Shorebirds mask pack. That's two for $20, and for every pack sold, we will donate one mask to an area nonprofit group up to the first 100 masks. You can also get a free mask with every $30 spent at the Shorebirds Flock Shop, and again, that's up to the first 100. It's a limited-time offer for these, and it lasts only through this Sunday, June 21st. Bird Buck deals are back. When you buy $20 in Bird Bucks, you can receive a $10 gift card to one of our participating partners, including Arby's, Boxcar 40, and Salad Works. For more information, visit theshorebirds.com. We've moved up the timeline on this week's Eastern Shore Legends profile, and Tuesday morning we released our tribute to Mickey Vernon. It was the latest from myself and Eric Day. Mickey Vernon, essentially the Dale Murphy of his day, a 20-year big league veteran, including 14 years with the old Washington Senators. Vernon was a seven-time All-Star and a two-time American League batting champ, but all the way back in 1937, he debuted as a 19-year-old with the Easton Browns of the Eastern Shore League. And finally, we'd like to issue a welcome to our 2020 Orioles draft class. The Major League Draft was held last week, just five rounds this year. The Orioles class is headlined by number two overall pick Heston Kerstead, a lefty-hitting power outfielder from the University of Arkansas. Joining Kerstead are Mississippi State shortstop Jordan Westberg, Tulane outfielder Hudson Haskin, Ole Miss shortstop Anthony Servidio, third baseman Colby Mayo out of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, and right-handed pitcher Carter Baumler out of Dowling Catholic High School in Iowa. Congratulations to all those young men, future Orioles perhaps, future Shorebirds almost certainly. Time now to pay homage to last year's historic 90-win season with our Call of the Week. This week we'll spotlight June 20th, 2019. It was the Shorebirds' second half opener at Greensboro. Delmarva went 48-21 in the first half, but even then it took until the final week to dispatch both Hickory and Greensboro. They were the league's three best teams and all played in the same division. Down the stretch, cracks started to show in the Shorebirds' facade. They had lost 6 of 8 to close the first half, their first true slump of the year. At that point, you had to wonder whether or not the Magic would be contained to the first half. Plus, it didn't help that in that second-half opener, the Grasshoppers took an 11-2 lead after the sixth. But slowly, the Shorebirds came back to life. They scored 4 in the seventh, 4 in the eighth, and had Caden Grenier as the tying run on second base after a leadoff walk and a passed ball, Will Gardner pitching for the Grasshoppers, Cody Roberts at the plate in the ninth. Cody's waited a long time to get back to the Shorebirds. He started this eight-run flourish back in the seventh with an RBI base knock. 
2-1 pitch, high fly ball out towards left field. Harris back at the track, he leaps up, he makes the catch, falls down. Grenier's headed for third. Oh, he's gonna come home! Throw the cutoff man to the plate! Grenier's safe! Caden Grenier scores from second base on a fly ball by Cody Roberts. Harrer fell down. Grenier was thinking two all the way. We are tied in Greensboro. It's 11-11. Grenier's mad dash forced extra innings. Then in the 10th, Nick Horvath started on second base. Ryan Ogren bunted him to third, and newcomer Edison Lantigua looked to make an immediate impact in his first game in the orange and black. 1-2 pitch on the way, lashed past the diving, Mo Tyson to right base, hit Bird's lead. Horvath scores, and on at first with his first shorebird hit and his third RBI of the night is Edison Lantigua. It is 12-11 shorebirds in the 10th inning. They have scored 10 unanswered. Meet the new birds, same as the old birds. After a scoreless ninth, reliever John Palufo came back out for the bottom of the tenth and used the whole yard to keep the grasshoppers off the board. Palufo ready, two and two the count. John wheels and deals. High fly ball into right field. Turchin's back at the warning track. He is at the wall. He makes the catch in the glow of the scoreboard and the ball game is over. 12 to 11. The Shorebirds erase a nine-run deficit. And they take this second-half opener in purely stunning fashion. And Dorian remains with bat in hand. Kaiser, the on-deck man, is just standing at the plate staring and thinking, how in the world did that not get out of here? If I'm a Shorebird supporter, folks, I'm thinking, how in the world did this just happen? Well, hey, you know already, they're the comeback kings, and they just pulled off the mother load in the opener of the second half. John Palufo shutting it down with a 1-2-3 10th inning. Doran Turchin, the all-star MVP two days ago, recording all three outs in the 10th. The new guy, Edison Lantigua, with the go-ahead single in the top of the 10th, and the Shorebirds... We would say unlikely, but we've seen it before, folks. We've seen it before, just not in this volume. That miracle comeback was a sign of steady as she goes for the Shorebirds. They won that series three games to one and went 42-27 and after the All-Star break, tying with Hickory for the second-half division crown and meeting the Crawdads in the Northern Division Championship Series. As for Greensboro, the entire 2019 season was bad luck for the Grasshoppers. The three best teams in the Sally League were all in the North Division, and the Grasshoppers, despite finishing two games better than South Division champion Augusta, were left out of the cold as the third-place team. So it came to no surprise to anyone that the eventual league champs that year would be the 68-70 and 70 Lexington Legends. Because baseball. We now shift into this week's One Flew Over feature interview with former Shorebirds left-handed pitcher Scott Rice. Rice was a first-round pick taken 44th overall by the Orioles in 1999 out of Royal High School in Simi Valley, California. 
His breakthrough season came in 2003 with Delmarva. He went 4-1 with an 0.94 ERA and five saves in 32 appearances before a midseason promotion to Frederick. Rice pitched in five different organizations and for several independent teams before finally making his big league debut with the New York Mets in 2013, his 15th season as a pro. He eventually appeared in 105 games for the Mets from 2013 through 14 and retired in 2016 after 18 professional seasons. Earlier this spring, Rice was revealed as the left-handed relief pitcher on the Shorebirds' silver anniversary team. Scott Rice joining us from Thousand Oaks, California. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. How about you, Will? Uh, doing pretty well. Uh, glad to talk to you. And we were talking a little bit before the interview uh, with your kids. It's sort of like they've gone back to the time of the Sandlot, just out and outside playing every day. Yeah, you know, it uh, almost feels like summer every single day for them. I got uh, about 12 kids in the neighborhood. They're just running around riding bikes and live close to a park, so they go out there and play baseball and yeah, they just have a lot of fun, so I'm pretty envious of what they're getting to do right now. They're making the best of the situation. And you go just leave them vicariously when they say, Mom, Dad, I'm going out. Yep, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, this is the second time that we've uh, talked in the past couple of months, and, and when we spoke to you in March, you could just hear it in your voice about how much you appreciated your time uh, with the Shorebirds back in 02 and especially 03. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You know, I've, you know, Delmarva held a you know really big place in my heart. It was a turning point in my career, and so I'll always remember it. Yeah, and uh, just the experience with playing uh, in Delmarva in a town where you know the fans really, really buy into the team. And there's a sort of romanticized version of minor league baseball out there that that you see in Bull Durham. And it's not to say that there aren't some elements of that in the real thing, but Delmarva it seems to be one of those places where it comes pretty close to that. Yeah, Delmarva was really interesting. Um, you know, going there, it was my first time playing in front of large crowds uh, before I played in Bluefield and, you know, places like that and down in uh, Sarasota. But Delmarva was my first true taste of, you know, long bus rides and all that stuff. And it's interesting because at the time, and I'm, it's still at such a great stadium, but at the time it was so state-of-the-art, it was so new. You know, we were going and playing in old stadiums, you know, that Mickey Mantle and Babe Ruth had played in and some of the stadiums that they had in the, uh, in the movie Bull Durham. And so... You know, to see that and to have us have like the cutting edge stadium, it was really nice to always come home. We always enjoy playing at home because of the facilities that we had. I'll bet. And especially after all those long bus rides to come back to a place where you felt at home and where you felt, OK, I'm not going to have to rough it here. I'm going to get uh, all the latest and greatest. I mean, it had to be a relief. Yeah, it definitely was, you know, and it was a. Uh, it felt nice to be at home and playing in front of the fans. We always had good fans coming out and that's 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 the biggest thing when the city rallies around the team, you know, the team, you know, comes home and they're excited to play. Mm -hmm. Now you were a, a first round pick back in uh, 99 and right out of high school. Um, you were in the system for four years uh, up and down and then finally put it together in 2003 with Delmarva and even went to the all-star game in Lexington. Uh, how did it feel to get to pitch in that game after going through uh, all of that, the long and winding road to get there? You know, it was uh it was very nice to, you know, get some recognition and to finally have a, uh, finally have a, felt like it was a turning point in my career and to really, you know, turn the page on, you know, what I've been doing before and, you know, start, you know, springboarding that off of, uh, into the rest of my career. It was, uh, you know, going to, going to Lexington was a great opportunity. There's a lot of good players in that all-star game. I can't remember all the names off the top of my head, but I just remember 
the talent there was, you know, I feel like it was that league in that season was, you know, really stacked with some good players. Absolutely. And then I imagine it wasn't that long after the All-Star game that you got the call and uh, saying, hey, congratulations, you're heading up to uh, Frederick now. Yeah, I believe it was, uh, you know, a couple weeks after that I was uh, going up to Frederick. So it was it was bittersweet. Obviously, you know, you want to get um, you want to get called up and you want to keep advancing up the ladder. But for me, going to Delmarva where I was comfortable and being on a team that, you know, I really enjoyed playing with and playing in front of the fans. You know, it was sad to say goodbye. Um, but, you know, that's that's the way life is. And so it was, you know, they're still in my memories and, you know, it's still so fond and feels like it was just yesterday I was there. 17 years ago and still feeling like yesterday, I know it's been a while, but is there any one in particular that stands out as the quintessential Delmarva moment? Um, Not necessarily. I mean, there's so many flashes of just memories of teammates, of guys. Um, you know, just there's just a lot of flashes of, of stuff that happened. There's not really one thing that sticks out necessarily. Um, you know, I really enjoyed, like I said, the fans. I really enjoyed, you know, I remember uh, Les Moore would be sitting down there. He had a tattoo oh, on yeah. his calf of the shorebirds <laughs> sitting right there every single day before we came out for batting practice. He was out there, um, you know, and just having all that support going out in the town, um, you know, and having people just really, really embracing us was that was probably the one thing I really do remember that. And, you know, just being with the teammates and just feeling, you know, part of the community. There you go. It's, it's that quintessential minor league experience. It really is, you know. It's I, you know I've played in some so many other towns, and you just you know I, when when I got up to Ottawa, AAA with the Orioles, AAA team used to be in Ottawa. You know, people had no mm -hmm. clue that you know we even had a team. There was even baseball, or they didn't. They'd come to games and had no clue how to read the scoreboard. You know, they'd ask them, "What are all those numbers up there on the scoreboard for?" And you know, we'd have to explain it to them. You know, with the handful of fans we got, we probably got about fifteen. But you know, in Delmarva, I mean, they're baseball people. Um, the whole Eastern Shore is just. It's baseball, you know, born and bred. And so to be there in that type of atmosphere was really great. Yeah, I can imagine with Ottawa, I mean, there's the exchange rate up there, too. I mean, one run is worth uh, 1.2 runs in Canada. <laughs> That's why my ERA was so high when I was there. There you go. There you go. We found Figured the answer. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, well, you uh, were in the O system until 2006. You, you got up to AAA, and then it was on to the Rangers and other organizations. Uh, what were some of the differences that you noticed in the approaches to pitching or, or uh, pitching coaching uh, as you went from system to system? Well, that was uh, that's a that's a really good uh, question. You know, playing with the Orioles when I first got drafted, you know, I was a first rounder. I was young out of high school. I was 17 years old. And so I was getting a lot of advice from a lot of different coaches. And I think that that everyone had the best intentions, but they just. I was, I was taking in too much. I was absorbing everything. And every single time I went out there to pitch, I was trying a new thing, whether going and doing the wind up with my hands over my head or keeping them down, keeping them up, keeping you know, so to get that consistency, finally in 2003, I was able, um, you know, start working. I think Dave Schuler was there. And so we started working. I just kept listening to him and I, you know, I just kind of, I took in information from other people, but I didn't necessarily implement it if I didn't feel like it was correct for me. And so I started being a little bit stubborn with my career and taking that over. And so that was just, that's really what springboarded me in 2003 um, going on up. And then what was lucky is I, you know, I got to have Dave another year. And then I worked with Larry McCall for a couple of years after that. And we moved up together as well. Mm -hmm. And so having some consistency in pitching coaches was really, was really important for me. Um, then I went to different organizations and 
I didn't necessarily have that consistency anymore. So I really fell back on what I'd learned in my years in Delmarva and in Bowie and in Ottawa. And really, you know, I took a lot of notes and I would refer back to those, you know, to go back to the pitching coaches that really helped me. Okay. So it was uh, sort of an approach of, of seeing what else fits on the foundation that you built in Delmarva and, and what's the most effective to uh, build on the foundation and get you to the next step based on that. Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, I think, you know, even, you know, for you as a broadcaster, I'm sure you got so much information, but you have to find your own voice. You know, mm -hmm. you can't go and mimic everybody else when you're going out there. You have to find your voice and find your rhythm. And you might have some, and you're going to have some, you know, some ideas of, you know, maybe a little bit of Vin Scully in you. And hopefully you have a bunch of Harry Carey, because I know that, <laughs> you know, you, you guys have a similar style, right? A but, little bit, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, it's all about find, finding your your own, you know, unique style. And, you know, I was able to do that um, coming out of the bullpen, especially. It gave me that, the chance to go out there every single day for short stints and uh, figure it out. Well, there you go. It, it's all about just doing what works for you and uh, not trying to do too much of what somebody else is doing. And, and I'll tell you, if you break out the Howard Cosell, that's how you know that you're really challenged <laughs> as a broadcaster. So uh, I, ah, I can relate. There it, there it is. I love it. <laughs> Uh, we're uh, speaking with Scott Rice right now, a former Shorebird reliever uh, back in 02 and 03. And, uh, Scott, you uh, pitched in the Atlantic League for uh, several stints, uh, 08, 09, and 2011, and you made it back to the affiliated minors each time. Uh, can you take us through what it's like uh, signing with an indie ball team and then playing there and, and ultimately uh, reaching out and, and getting back into affiliated ball? Yeah, it's... Uh... You know, one of those things with independent ball, it used to have a stigma that it doesn't really have anymore. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you felt like you were kind of one of the forgotten ones, like the lost boys from, you know, from Peter Pan. Like, you know, no one really wanted you. You were kind of on the outs. And it is true. Um, I think it's starting to change now with independent ball. They're, especially now that they're talking about cutting these minor league teams. Um, I think independent ball is going to have a bigger place. But at the time when I went there, especially my first stint, it was – not very well funded. You weren't very taken, taken care of very well. Um, you know, the, the teams did the best they could, but they just didn't have the backing. And, you know, it was, so it was a little bit different. Um, some of the players there, some of them were focused, some of them weren't. So it was really important for me to make sure I continued working, doing my work ethic, keeping, you know, what I like to say, keep my blinders on mm -hmm. and just, you know, keep my head down and just doing what I knew I had to do to be successful. So, you know, one of the things that I would do, is I would call every single Monday, I'd call all 30 teams Ooh. and I would call the minor league coordinator. I'd call the GM. I would call any, the front office. I would call the pitching coordinator. I'd call anyone I knew, any phone number I can get a hold of. And I would leave a message. If they didn't answer, I would email them. I would get any information and every single Monday. It was over and over and over again. And, you know, I ended up building a rapport with teams. And I think the teams really understood that I was taking my career in my own hands. Um, a lot of, a lot of players sit there and, you know, they get released for the first time or, you know, they don't get a job um, for the next season coming to spring training. And, you know, they wait for their agent to do the, to do the work for them to try to find them that job. But for me, I wasn't going to, uh, you know, take it sitting down. You know, I was going to, you know, go out there and fight for my career because, because of what I've done, because of, you know, I knew that it was about opportunity for me at that point. So I enjoyed it. Um, I had a lot of fun and I learned uh, a drive inside myself that I never knew. So it was, you know, it was a learning experience for me that I take with me now. And uh, learning experience and making all those connections, you know, if you, you call 
everybody uh, every week. Eventually, some of them are going to remember. And one of them that did uh, was right before 2013, the New York Mets, uh, who, who you ultimately cracked the show with. Um, mm -hmm. uh, can you take us through the process of what it was like signing with them and then going to spring training and realizing that, uh, hey, I'm, I'm going to be on the opening day roster? Yeah, well, so that's interesting because that connection goes back to my days um, playing in independent ball when I was playing for York. I would mm -hmm. call every team every day, and one of the person I was calling was Paul D. Podesta. So if you oh. remember Paul D. Podesta, I believe it was who who played him in uh, Moneyball? Was it Brad Pitt? Uh, Jonah Hill. Or Jonah Hill. That's right. Uh, <laughs> too bad for him. Paul's a much better looking man. But so Paul D. Podesta was one of the contacts I had, and you know they didn't sign me originally, but then. Um, when I came off of my surgery, uh, you know, I was, I was a free agent and I reached out to Paul and I came in through a bullpen for the Padres at the time. And the Padres signed me and said, Hey, look, you know, we're going to give you a year. We have some guys, but we're going to give you, um, a year to kind of, this is to rehab your arm and then, you know, see what, see what happens. Mm -hmm. So he really came, he reached out to me because he respected me from the phone calls that I had made before and gave me an opportunity with the Padres. Um, ultimately it didn't work out, but you know, we, we kept that connection and that friendship. So, you know, fast forward a couple more years, I was playing uh, with the Dodgers. I was the last cut out of spring training to make the team for the Dodgers. I mean, growing up in L.A., um, I, playing for the Dodgers was my dream, you know. And so to be to after all the you know ups and downs I had in my career to have the opportunity to possibly crack my major league, you know, um, my major league debut with the Dodgers was you know too good to be true. Um, I ended up not making the team. I went to AAA and I was on a, a special routine where I wasn't going to, I couldn't pay back to back days because the Dodgers were like, look, if we need to call somebody up and we need a lefty, like you're the one. Mm -hmm. So somehow that entire season, they didn't need another lefty. <laughs> um, you know, I put up good numbers. I was, you know, doing everything possible, but it, ju it just didn't work out. So I was pretty frustrated at that time. I felt like I had done everything on my part to, um, to figure out, you know, to get to the major leagues. And now it was just the opportunity. I'm knocking at the door and just no one's answering. So I decided what I was going to do. Josh Bard, um, you know, he played in the major leagues for a long time as a catcher mm -hmm. uh, with the Red Sox and some other teams. He was our, uh, he was our catcher uh, that year, AAA with the Dodgers in Albuquerque. And he suggested I try to learn a split finger fastball. So I said, okay. Um, I decided that winter I was going to go to the Dominican Republic. And I was, that's all I was going to do. I said, as soon as I get, as soon as I get to an 0-2 or a 1-2 count on any hitter, all I'm going to do is throw split finger fastballs until I either strike them out or I walk them. Okay. And that's what I did, and I and I developed that pitch. And so by doing that, I had a lot of success down there. Um, and I got a phone call from two teams uh, that winter. Like so, midnight midnight on a certain day, they're allowed to start calling teams. Mm -hmm. Um, and to start you know the free agency process. And so I got a call from at about. I'm down in the Dominican Republic, mind you. I'm, I got a call in my hotel room. No one calls my hotel room. No one knows, you know, where I'm at. Uh -huh. I got a call at 12.02, and it was um, it was the A's that called me. Uh -huh. And I talked to them. They said, you know, we're interested. We want to, you know, we want your email address. And they sent me over this really cool, like, sabermetric package as, you know, what, you know, all my numbers and my statistics and how they – correlate and it was one of the most interesting things you know that i ever saw like how they broke down all the analytics yeah. on me and why i would be a fit to pitch in oakland I talk about money ball um, right exactly and so then the funny thing is is that um 
you know, right after that, about 12:10, I get a phone call from Paul D. Podesta okay. saying, you know, who, you know, was tied to the A's kind of saying the same thing, you know, and, and talked to me. And so I knew I had two good options to go with either the A's or the, uh, or the uh, Mets and both teams said, said the same thing, you know, you got a chance to make the team. I've been hearing that with the Dodgers and with, you know, every other free agent team I signed, you know, come into spring training, have a good spring training. You have a chance to make the team. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, so, you know, I just, I took it with a grain of salt knowing, I know, I know that's what you say, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm looking at the rosters, you got each team was pretty even as far as the lefties they had on the 40 man roster and the guys I'd have to beat out. Um, I guess what the, uh, you know, so I was trying to juggle it. And then, you know, I guess the turning point for me was I got a call from Terry Collins, who was the manager um, of the Mets at mm -hmm. the time. And he gave me a phone call because he was with the Dodgers. Um, my first stint with them and we had a relationship then. And he was the um, minor league coordinator then. Uh, so he gave me a call and that just kind of, you know, t took the Mets over the top, just knowing that, okay, well, if I'm getting a call from the, from the big league manager and he's telling me these things, you know, it's more than just, you know, eyewash, I think. So, yeah, so that was that was the reason why I decided to go uh, sign with the Mets, and you know, it, it just it was fate for me, you know, to go there and go in that situation uh, where I truly felt like the team wanted me there, and I was a priority for them. Oh, there was certainly a priority, and you definitely made up for lost time. I, I know you got into seventy-three games that year, which is almost top ten in the National League. Yeah, well, it was number one until I got hurt. So right. I was leading right. the league. I was leading all of baseball in. Uh, in appearances and you know i had latroy hawkins down there who was i think 40 at the time he'd been you know in the big leagues for 20 something years and you know he was he was giving me a lot of advice trying to help me out um you know him and i were with the or so when we were, i was with the orioles my first spring training he was with the orioles then and he took me under his wing he's one of the most influential people um in my baseball career as far as players wise and uh you know he he gave me a lot of great advice as far as you know because in the minor leagues, it's completely different. They protect you as, as a pitcher, as a reliever. Okay, if you throw more than three days in a row, you have to have the next day off. If you throw more than a couple innings, you know, you have to have the next day off. Mm -hmm. The major leagues, it's about winning. And there'd be times when, you know, I'd go in, you know, I'd talk to the pitching coach, Dan Ward, and I'd be like, Dan, I am, I need a day. I pitched six days in a row, and I warmed up, you know, in 10 days in a row. Mm -hmm. You know, I need a break. And Dan would be like, okay, no problem. You know, I'll go and, uh, you know, just go and tell Terry you need you need a day off and you know we'll we'll make that happen. So I'd go up to Terry and I'd be like Terry, and he would just give me those just the dart eyes like don't you say what you want to say to me right now. <laughs> He's like I need you, and so I'd, I'd be like Terry I just need one day. He goes well what about a hitter? I'm like well if it's a huge situation and you really need a lefty out of course yes I got you. So that was his that was his out to be okay fine and I'd, I'd warm up two or three times that game. You know, so, but I loved it. You know, that's the whole reason why um, I liked being a reliever. Um, you know, after I started having some success in Delmarva, teams would ask me, what do you want to do? Do you want to start? Do you want to relieve? And I always say, I want to relieve. I love coming to the park every single day, knowing that I have a chance to help the team win each and every game. You know, whereas a starter, you'd pay, you'd, you had your one game and then you had four days off where, you know, you couldn't do anything to help the team besides do a chart and have a hold a radar gun. Mm -hmm. And that just wasn't fun to me. So, you know, I loved it. And LaTroy would be telling me, Scotty, you need to take a day off. You need to, you need a break. You want me to go talk to Terry for you, you know, but I'm like, no, you know, I've taken 
I've waited so long to get here. I'm going to get my money's worth. I'm going to, you know, you know, get every single, I'm going to just soak it all in and I'm never going to say no. I'm going to pitch every single day, you know, cause this is, I mean, it's a dream come true. I believe that. I mean, it's uh Troy 15 years in the uh, 14 years in the minor leagues, man. I, I don't know when this is going to end. I'm, I'm going to, you know, go in, I'll, I'll pitch every day if they need me to. Exactly. Exactly. So, and, and that's what I was doing, you know, and that was my goal. My goal was that, you know, at the, it got to a point where I said, you know what, I'm going to lead the major leagues. And if I can do anything, if I can lead it in any category as a left-handed reliever, I mean, you're not going to do holds or saves, maybe some holds. And I was up there in holds. I think I was top five in holds in the national league mm -hmm. at the time. Um, but then, and I was number one in appearance and I said, heck yeah, I'm going to keep this ball rolling as long as I can. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, do you remember, uh, so Terry tells you, uh, well, Scott, what about this guy or what about that guy? Do you remember anybody in specific that really stands out as the uh, the toughest of, of that guy that you had to come in and, and absolutely get out? Well, that's interesting because, I mean, most of these guys I'd face coming up through the minor leagues, I was almost like the, uh, I was almost like the gatekeeper in a way because I was in AAA for so long for a mm -hmm. lot of these you know, young lefties coming up. It's, right. They would, they all, I faced every single one of them, you know. Um, you know, so I was familiar with them as much as they were familiar with me. It was just in a bigger setting with a lot more people watching and a lot more on the line. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know how countless times I faced Bryce Harper, um, okay. countless times, Freddie Freeman. I mean, the, I mean, Christian Yelich was in there, was in the league. Um, you know, so I was going through, you know, a lot of good, a lot of good hitters at the time. Um, I would say the toughest for me would probably was probably Freddie Freeman. Mm. You know, he just. The way that, you know, I threw a lot of sinkers and the way his bat path was, was, you know, I, it was, a, it was a big challenge um, facing him. I mean, he's such a good hitter. He's more of a contact hitter. He has you know, lots of power, but he's really good at making contact similar to Joey Votto where they don't swing and miss that often. So right. for that, that was, that was really tough for me. Bryce Harper, um, you know, Yelich, guys like that, they're old. Yelich is, was a con more contact at that time, but you know, the bigger hitters I've always had better success against because they take big swings and they miss a lot. And, you know, using my, my movement that I threw, you know, with a lot of movement, it was, uh, that was to my advantage. Okay. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so, uh, you get to the major leagues and you're 31 years old, uh, as a rookie. And, and I know that, uh, there's no way they, they wouldn't let you get away with at least a little bit of hazing. Do you remember anything specific? I, I remember always seeing, uh, there's a, like a kitty backpack that uh, was in a lot of a bullpens, Mets included, that uh, one guy had to, to carry game to game. Yeah, you know, I, I did. Uh, and, you know, I got my fair my fair share of it for sure. You know, the backpacks and, you know, having to do some things. But I also got a lot of respect um, mm -hmm. because of because you know, of my career. Um, Latroy respected me a lot. A lot of the older guys, Brandon Lyon, who's in the bullpen, uh, Bobby Parnell, the guys who had that time, they respected, you know, what I had gone through to get to where I was. And so, you know, I didn't get all of it, but I did get my fair share and I loved it, you know, yeah. making sure, you know, carrying guys bags and doing that type of stuff because, <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting. I, I grew up from that old school mentality where, you know, it's not about because they don't like you. It's because they want you, it, you know, it's, it's a passing of the guard. They want you to be part of it and they want you to, you know, understand, you know, the things you're going through and they, they want to keep you grounded as well. And so I understood that part and I, and I really enjoyed it. I know one time I was new to Twitter and mm -hmm. I uh, called Latroy Hawkins out about, you know, 
some restaurant that had been around since the 1800s or something. And I said, Detroit was the first patron there. And <laughs> that was a bad idea. That was a mistake. So he rode me pretty hard for about a month after that. And so, but yeah, I mean, it, it's great. You know, all that stuff, all that camaraderie, those are the things you really, you really miss. And those are the things you remember more than the games and things like that. It's, you know, the stuff that happens behind the scenes, you know, the day-to-day basis and the relationships. I, I know that, uh, we talked about that a little bit the last time, and, and it's something I saw in you when uh, when we crossed paths in York in 2016 that you played the game with that sort of joy and the love of the, the pranks and the hijinks from behind the scene. And uh, we've talked about how you sort of came from that last generation before social media became this all-encompassing thing and, and forced people to maybe become a little more guarded because there's always a, a spotlight on them. Yeah, that's, that's true. You know, it's... Uh... I used to call it the baseball America generation at the time, because, you know, when I was, when I got drafted, there was, you know, what the, the draft wasn't on TV, the draft wasn't even on the internet, you know, you had to wait for a phone call. Right. And so, you know, now these guys, they're, they're stars, you know, the draft was yesterday. And I mean, these guys are stars before they've even played one professional game and they got such a long way to go before they get to the major leagues Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to any other sport where, you know, you're thrown right into the fire. So it's interesting because, these guys, you know, they're, they're told how great they are. And, you know, and they, and a lot of them, and most of them are, and a lot of them believe it. And so it's just a different generation because, because they're told how great they are, because they're in these magazines, because they have social media and they're under this microscope, you know, they can't get away with things. I mean, people have cell phones now, they have cameras, they take pictures, they recognize who you are, they can Google your name. And mm-hmm. so it's, you know, they just can't get away with the things that, you know, we were able to get away with. Um, not that we got in trouble before, but I mean, we went out and we had, we had a lot more practical jokes um, in the clubhouse or, you know, we had a lot more things that we could do a lot more anonymity when we went out into public, you know, going to restaurants and things like that, that I feel bad for these players nowadays. Yeah. It's definitely the, the veil, you know, if it was there uh, at all, mm-hmm. even back then it, it's completely gone now. Yeah. Well, you know, and I said I feel bad for them. I don't because there's a lot of opportunity for them because of this, you know. But they have to be smart. I mean, I was a 17-year-old kid, and if I had Twitter and Instagram, I mean, I would have been, I would have been in big trouble at the time, <laughs> you know. And I think, and I think most of us would have been, you know. So I think these kids are forced to mature a lot quicker and a lot sooner than they because they have to, mm-hmm. because of, you know because of all this. That's true. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we we had spoke about it before, just as far as the generations with my career, and I felt like it was pretty interesting because I went from like we talked about with the stadiums playing in these old stadiums to all of a sudden being in the middle of the renaissance of minor leagues, where new stadiums and new teams are popping up all over the place. And I don't know how many times we, you know we uh, we played an inaugural season for a stadium, you know, or a brand new team, or you know things like that. It was it was really, really cool to be able to be part of that. Um, you know, I went from my first year playing, uh, signing, I mean, steroids were rampant mm-hmm. and, you know, people were doing them all over the place and it was just part of the culture to then going through the drug testing and now do, having the game is, you know, a lot cleaner than it is, than it was before. And I think it's, you know, we're doing a really good job of trying to keep the competitiveness, uh, level, you know, even, but, yeah, it was a whole different era back then. And it was, you know, it was a lot more, a lot less, I guess, uh, corporate than it is now. Yeah. So you're in the major leagues and, and you deal with a couple of injuries and you end up pitching for two more years after uh, the majors and you capped it 
with the York Revolution in 2016. Uh, I know that uh, you had an idea that there was a good chance that that was going to be the last ride. Uh, did it impact the way that you approached that summer? Uh, were there instances where in the past you may not have, but uh, in that summer sort of taking a step back and drinking it all in? Um, yeah, there was. Um, I didn't want to. I didn't want it to, to, you know, it was one of those things when the ride's ending, you don't want to see it go. Um, you know, it was interesting, uh, you know, going through that because it was, it was really emotional for me. I mean, baseball had been, you know, for especially the 18 years playing professionally, but my whole life baseball was, um, you know, was a part of me and it still is. And the worst part about it is, you know, any other profession, you know, if you're a lawyer, if you're a radio broadcaster, if you're um, whatever you're doing, you know, if you decide, you know what, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. I want to try something different. You can go back to this and try that Avenue again. But as a baseball player, once you take that uniform off, I mean, you're not putting it back on again, you know, mm -hmm. as a player. And so I knew that, you know, once, once, you know, I said goodbye, like that, that was really it. And there was you know, the finality of it. So that was really difficult for me. Um, but a lot of it was great because it was a choice I was making myself. I, I knew I had opportunities where I could have continued playing, whether it was in York or playing, you know, in a triple A team and, you know, bouncing up and down between the major leagues and the minor leagues. But uh, my wife had just had a baby, um, you know, so we were had a growing family and it just got to that point to where I didn't, I wanted to be there. I wanted to be there for my son. I wanted to have some stability for him and mm -hmm. for my family. And so it just, it was great to be able to go out there and not hold on for too long. I don't think, um, and just kind of go out on your own and, you know, be content and be really happy with, you know, the way my career turned out. Yeah, I can imagine. And you're back in uh, Southern California now and you're working in real estate. Uh, your stories are undoubtedly uh, more interesting than your average uh, real estate agent, realtor. Uh, what usually happens when when you're talking to people, maybe showing a house and, and they find out, wait, wait, you pitched for how long? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I kind of talk to people and usually the first time, um, you know, they go, okay, that's cool. You know, I have, a, I have a friend who played in the minor leagues and played like rookie baller. The best one is when people say they played semi-pro, which <laughs> is, uh, you know, I don't know what that means because you, if you're a pro, if you get paid and you're not a pro, if you don't get paid, but you can't get halfway paid, I don't know. But, you know, I guess, I guess that's something. Um, but yeah, usually the second go around when people meet me, then they're like, oh, like, googled you and okay now i get your whole career and usually it's a lot of admiration um everyone always just says you know I, wow like you really battled through you know a tough career that's you know and they give me you know that's usually what i get you know getting to the major leagues as long as i you know taking as long as i did the road the journey um you know where most of it was with the orioles system which uh, i felt so blessed because it's such a great fan base and a great great city great areas you know great teams that i was able to be a part of um you know, that was, that's really, you know, what I take with me in my career. Yeah. Uh, Scott Rice, everybody, a former Shorebird reliever, 18-year uh, professional pitcher, two-year big leaguer, and a uh, great friend of the podcast. Scott, thanks for joining us again, and uh, all the best uh, uh, in your future endeavors. And, and, hey, don't feed your kids too many of those split-finger fastballs, okay? <laughs> you got it. Thanks, Will. It was great being on. This I'll say, baseball needs more guys like Scott Rice, and it was really great to catch up with him again. You can follow him on social media. On Twitter, he is at LARROZ underscore 56. That's at E-L-A-R-R-O-Z underscore 56. On Instagram, at Scott Rice underscore 56. 
And if you're looking for a home in the Southern California region, look him up at Delbeck Real Estate. He'll find you a nice house. Time to close the show with Fan Shots, the segment for Shorebirds fans by Shorebirds fans. This week we'll take a look at the memories of Justin Jump, who enjoyed meeting Adley Rutschman last season. Says Justin, he's a stand-up guy, especially when he was taken first overall. Now every number one pick gets attention, but there was something about Rutschman that set him apart. He was the first number one overall pick to play for the Delmarva Shorebirds, and there was a hunger to see him, especially here in Delmarva and in Aberdeen, and even when we visited Hagerstown late in the season, and he brought in lines around the block at Old Municipal Stadium. This is a really good time to be in the Orioles system. You've got Adley, you've got Grayson Rodriguez, you got everybody else rising through the system, and now you've got Heston Kerstead coming in at number two overall, who could be here in Delmarva next year, plus two other top 40 picks from this year's draft. The beauty of baseball is that you can see a wave of talent coming years in advance. Someday those guys will all make it to Baltimore. But here in the minor leagues, we get to ride that wave. That'll do it for this week's episode of One Flew Over the Shorebird's Nest. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review of the podcast. We're hosted on Anchor.fm, also available on Apple and Spotify. Keep up with the Shorebirds online. Visit theshorebirds.com and follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can follow me on Twitter at Will DeBoer. Our guest Scott Rice is on Twitter at LRAZ underscore 56 and on Instagram at Scott Rice underscore 56. The podcast will be going on hiatus for the time being. For future announcements on when it will return, keep it tuned into Shorebird's social media. And until then, this is Will DeBoer saying stay healthy, stay safe, and may all your favorite bands stay together. You've been listening to One Flew Over the Shorebird's Nest, the Delmarva Shorebird's podcast. So long, everybody. This has been a production of the Delmarva Shorebird's Baseball Club, Class A affiliate of the Baltimore Orioles.